We've been monitoring here at the health unit an increase in the number of syphilis cases over the last number of months. However, in the last few weeks, we've seen and heard from our clinician colleagues in the community that there's been an increase in those syphilis cases. And as a result, we want to make sure that people are aware so that they can take the appropriate steps to protect themselves and to get themselves tested. On December 10th, the Middlesex London Health Unit declared a community-wide syphilis outbreak. It follows provinces like Alberta, which declared an outbreak of its own this summer after seeing unprecedented increases in rates of the sexually transmitted disease, in some regions of over 300%, and a much larger trend both in Canada and internationally. You're listening to Hashtag Health, a podcast supported by the Canadian Federation of Medical Students and the University Students Council at Western. If you like this episode of the Hashtag Health podcast, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes for a chance to win an Amazon gift card. New winners are announced on the podcast and on Facebook every week. While the rise in syphilis is especially dramatic, it is still less common than other sexually transmitted diseases when compared with infections like chlamydia and gonorrhea, which have seen increases of their own, only to a much lesser degree. We spoke with Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Chief Medical Officer of Health in Alberta, about the resurgence of syphilis, why it's happening, how provinces like Alberta are addressing the outbreak, and what it can teach us about today's changing sexual health landscape. We started from the basics and asked Dr. Hinshaw to describe what syphilis is and how it's spread. So it really is, it's called the great imitator, and for good reason, because it really can cause almost any manifestation in the body. And what syphilis does is when it infects the body, it uh, causes multiple stages of symptoms. So the very first stage, primary syphilis, is often pretty mild. So people would sometimes get some lymph node inflammation at the area where they were infected. Uh, They might get a a chancre or a, a sore, an ulcer at the site where they were infected. It's often painless, which is kind of a hallmark of that primary syphilis lesion. But other than that, that's, um, they don't necessarily experience much different. And that usually happens about three to six weeks after the infection has occurred. And then, uh, depending again on the, on the person and how these things roll out, again, these, these incubation periods are quite broad. But the secondary symptoms of syphilis are fairly nonspecific. They can include rash, fever, generally feeling unwell. They could include, again, swollen lymph glands, sometimes headaches, hair loss. In more severe cases, you could get inflammation of the nervous system, so you can get meningitis, you can get inflammation of the eyes, ocular syphilis, uh, tertiary syphilis is something that's, that's not always seen. It it kind of depends on uh, how often or how long uh, an individual has had it and and how that syphilis germ unfolds. But tertiary syphilis can end up causing severe damage to the brain, the heart, uh, blood vessels, liver, bones, joints. It it can impact almost any part of the body. And that's usually if the syphilis is untreated for 10 to 30 years. So that's really quite late manifestation. There's a latent form of syphilis uh, where it's, it's kind of quiet. The person has the infection, but they're not actively infectious, so they're not necessarily passing it along. So people are most infectious during those early stages in the primary, secondary um, stages of syphilis where they can pass it along. So syphilis is a sexually transmitted infection. It's caused by the bacteria Treponema pallidum, and it's a 
spirochete bacteria that um, is transmitted from one person to another, most commonly through, through sexual interactions, uh, but can be passed through blood transfusion, organ donation, needle sharing, some of those mechanisms. And if a woman is infected while she's pregnant, it can also be passed to the unborn baby, either during pregnancy or it can sometimes be passed at the time of delivery. Reports of syphilis outbreaks date back to the 15th century, and it was among the first infections known to be transmitted through sexual contact. It often afflicted and was spread by soldiers during periods of war. The remedies for syphilis during these early outbreaks were often quite toxic and ineffective, including a number of different treatments involving mercury and even infecting people with malaria. The discovery of penicillin in 1928 meant a safe and effective cure, and continues to be the most effective treatment for syphilis today. When penicillin became widely available in the 40s, rates of syphilis dropped, and eventually syphilis became a thing of the past. When I was in medical school, which was a while ago now, um, I remember a lecture where they said syphilis is a historical disease. This is something that people used to see a long time ago, but we never see it anymore. It's dealt with, you know, don't worry about it. We're kind of teaching you for completeness, but you'll never see a case. And of course, that wasn't true. We went through a long period where Syphilis was very uncommon, but we have seen a resurgence about, I want to say, maybe about eight or nine years ago, we had an outbreak. I always find it rather dramatic to look at our old reports and note that we haven't had rates this high in the province since 1948, which kind of puts it into perspective in terms of how long it's been since we've seen these kind of numbers in syphilis. So then why did syphilis rates remain low for so long? And why are they going back up now? Though the reasons aren't quite clear, and there may not be any one answer, Dr. Hinshaw believes changes in sexual practices play a major role in the shifting patterns of syphilis, as well as other sexually transmitted infections. Uh, I think what we saw, this is a hypothesis, but I think it's a, a reasonable hypothesis that when we saw in the 1980s, uh, the advent of HIV and AIDS and a lot of fear around the kinds of infections that could be transmitted through sexual activity, uh, there was a significant momentum or, or impetus for people to use barrier protection. And with the advent, which is fantastic, of, of really a lot better treatments for HIV, there is some conjecture that uh, people's willingness to use barrier protection has decreased because they don't see the same kind of dire consequences if they do happen to catch HIV and then all the other STIs sort of ride along. and. And there are cross-interactions, so someone who has any sexually transmitted infection, say syphilis, is more susceptible to catching HIV because any of those sexually transmitted infections disrupt the natural protective barriers in the uh, mucosa, and, and then you can get more easy transmission of, of additional infections. So definitely lots of complexity in terms of how these things transmit and I wouldn't I'm sure there are other differences but I think at the at the end of the day these STIs are clearly transmitted through sexual behavior so it's the differences in sexual behavior and those protective factors that um, make the difference. particularly among men who have sex with men, improved treatment and increasing use of pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV has led to less urgency to use condoms. 
for those having sex with people of the opposite gender, improved methods of contraception, like the IUD, has reduced fears of pregnancy, having a similar effect, enabling STIs to spread even more broadly. Yet sexual practices are only one small, though crucial, part of the puzzle in understanding the spread of syphilis. A host of other factors perpetuate the spread of infection and shape who is most likely to be affected in this outbreak. I, I think, uh, like anything else in public health, there's the proximal and the distal. So the things that are closest to the person that are risk factors and the things that are, are more contextual that are risk factors and the same for protective factors. So in terms of the things that are, are very proximal when we're looking at an individual, a lot of it is behavioral. So again, I think it wouldn't be a surprise to anyone uh, saying that people who have multiple sexual partners who don't use any kind of barrier protection when they're having sex, uh, people who do anonymous partnering, uh, people who have one STI often are at risk for other STIs because uh, when they're in a situation where they've gotten one STI, that kind of is a proxy for having uh, engaged in, in an activity that puts them at risk for other ones. So some of those things are really the, again, the, the behavior that puts people at risk for getting these infections. Obviously, to get a sexually transmitted infection, you need to have sex with somebody who has a sexually transmitted infection. Aside from, again, some of the, the needle sharing and some of the other uh, risk factors that, that people have. We also know when you're really getting a little bit further away from the individual and looking more at their context and the social risk factors, that there's some association between certain kinds of drug use and sexually transmitted infections. For example, research from the UK has found that stimulants like methamphetamine were used in conjunction with sexual activity and often associated with activities like prolonged sexual encounters or having multiple partners that increase the risk of transmitting an STI. So we, we do see an association with some kinds of illicit use with some of the, the STIs. But then again, you get a little bit further out and you think, well, what, what are the things that put people at risk for engaging in these behaviors? And you get back to some of the things we talked about earlier. So those who are in more precarious positions in their life, those who have life circumstances that, that maybe have led them to a position of being unstably housed, perhaps uh, having a, an addiction to something, uh, and again, individuals who, who are maybe trading sex for certain survival resources would be at risk. And then uh, you think about other things when you get even further back, things like adverse childhood experiences, where children who have traumatic experiences in their early childhood are really at risk for almost any health outcome you could name. So they're at higher risk for heart disease, for diabetes, uh, but also early childhood trauma can be a risk factor for risk-taking behavior and risky sexual behavior is one kind of risk-taking behavior. So I think you can see those risk factors go right from that person and how they behave to the things around them that maybe drive that. While syphilis is relatively easily treated, the challenge in responding to the outbreak comes down to identifying individuals who are infected and stopping transmissions. Uh, having conversations, really the, the three-word 
the pathway we're trying to promote is talk, test, treat. And so the talking, encouraging people to talk to their doctors, encouraging doctors to talk with their patients. Sex can still be something that's hard to bring up with a healthcare professional. People might feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. Uh, and also talking to partners. I think a lot of times people feel uncomfortable. Uh, in fact, it may be less comfortable to talk about sex than to have sex for some people. And so really encouraging people to talk with their partners, uh, understand how their partners are taking care of themselves and what kinds of risks they might have uh, getting tested before entering a, a new long-term relationship and encouraging the other partners to get tested. Uh, and then again, that testing piece in the middle and then the treatment piece, making sure that everyone who does have a positive test has easy access to treatment and any of the follow-up care that they might need. Beyond responding to and containing the outbreak, there's also the challenge of getting to those tougher underlying causes. So I think as a public health professional, there's a, an interesting concept called syndemics, where you're looking not just at an epidemic, but you're looking at things that, that come together and, and co-occur in, in epidemic proportions. And I think with the issues we're having with, with STIs, we're seeing challenges with illicit drug use, not that we don't have challenges with alcohol and, and tobacco, those certainly are ongoing public health challenges. but. I think when it comes to people engaging in behaviors that put them at higher risk, so that can be risky sexual behaviors, it can be different kinds of experimentation with, with drugs, which may or may not lead to problematic substance use, a lot of those things have, have common root causes that don't explain every single occurrence of, of an STI or problematic substance use. But the more that we can think about how we address people who have some of those risk factors like multiple adverse childhood experiences, like perhaps being in, in precarious social situations. I think that the more we'll be able to impact not just one illness, but many. And so thinking about the intersections between these health outcomes and how we can try to intervene more upstream. It's not a new lesson. I mean, that goes back as far as public health, but it's certainly one that we continue to to continue to try to move forward on. And so uh, certainly from the ministry perspective, we've been working really closely with our major partner, which is Alberta Health Services, who delivers health services in the province. And they operate many of the, the services that we've been talking about in terms of the testing and treating and the STI clinics trying to make barrier-free uh, sexual health care accessible to everyone. Uh, I think the other community partners really depend on the geography. So many community partners operate in a fairly local context. And so we've been really looking at those partners that work with especially the highest risk, the most vulnerable groups of people who have multiple either health or social needs. Uh, and so trying to partner with them to make sure that we're thinking through how do we lower barriers, reduce stigma, and uh, try to make access to care something that helps that individual, not just helps us achieve our ends, but actually helps that person who isn't just a number, one more check mark on a yes, we tested and treated, but actually something that can help them improve their health.
From a healthcare provider's perspective, this means a focus on how doctors engage with their patients. And it, it remains important. I think with respect to messages, key messages for the general population, it, to me this really goes back to when it comes to sexual behavior, thinking about as much as is possible, recognizing that for some people they're surviving and they're doing what they need and, and they have other needs and we need to be better at meeting them where they're at. But I think in terms of healthcare practitioners, just the same with the general public, there can sometimes be a discomfort with talking about sex or worried about if I ask about sex, will that offend this person in front of me? I think when it's appropriate to, to whether it's in a, a physical exam or as a part of investigating a particular complaint, gaining comfort in a respectful way by asking people about are they sexually active with men, women, or both, um, trying to kind of break down some of the stigma and barriers around sexual practices, thinking about sexual orientation and preferences, and not being afraid to ask those questions, um, because I think those are the kinds of things that allow people to open up in a healthcare encounter when they feel like their healthcare provider will listen to them. An important take-home message from Dr. Henshaw is that not only can you help prevent the spread of sexually transmitted infections like syphilis by having conversations about sex, getting tested for STIs, and using barrier methods like condoms, especially if you have multiple sexual partners or a new partner, but attending to your sexual health is just another important part of taking care of yourself. The traditional teachings that I've been uh, privileged to, to uh, learn from, uh, that concept of, of honoring your body and, and honoring your partners by doing that so that this is is a way of thinking about the fact that uh, the choices that you make in, in all aspects of your life impact your health and, and sexual health is just one part of that so that it's not disconnected or disrupted from that um, whole of life, uh, social, emotional, physical, spiritual, whole of life health, but that ultimately it would be great if we could achieve that for all of us. So I don't know, that's kind of a long key message, <laughs> longer than it should be, uh, but maybe boiling it down to uh, honoring yourself by honoring your health. And, and that I think is, is important in all, all walks. We'd like to thank Dr. Henshaw for taking the time to be on our show. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode of Hashtag Health. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram at Hashtag Health Podcast. If you have any questions, thoughts, or feedback, be sure to subscribe to the Hashtag Health Podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. See you next week.